Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to The Broad Experience, the show about women, the workplace, and success. I'm Ashley Miltite. In this episode, we look at society's obsession with winning. It takes over most aspects of life from sport to school to the workplace. My guest is a three-time Olympian. The first two were very much dominated by this macho narrative about who's the winner. And, you know, if you lose, you've got to show how much you hate losing because that's what winners do. Rethinking what winning means. Coming up on The Broad Experience. It was the summer of 2004. British rower Kath Bishop was in her early 30s, competing at her third Olympic Games in Athens alongside her crewmate, Catherine Granger. During the final race, the two of them powered through the water, stroke after stroke, one of six pairs of female rowers. Looking very good indeed, very lively, much, much better than they were in their opening heat. Uh, They've really picked it up there. There's uh, Kath Bishop there in the stroke seat, very, very sharp, very, very aggressive. Now, to get to this point, Kath had worked incredibly hard. She'd already competed in two previous Olympics and won a world championship the year before. But for years, she'd found the world of professional sport pretty brutal. The rigorous physical and mental training, the focus on winning above all else, how terrible she felt about herself whenever she did poorly. There's a lot of pressure when you're representing your country. Canada beginning to slip back as Great Britain start to make their charge. Great Britain moving up on Belarus. They're just about level there with Canada. As Kath and her crewmate crossed the finish line after a grueling seven minutes, she was so depleted she wasn't even sure who'd won. And remarkable performance by the two Romanians. Great Britain closing to ensure that they take the silver. They had, in fact, come second. And that experience of winning a silver medal got Kath thinking deeply about this winning culture that had ruled her life for so long. Recently, she turned her thoughts and research into a book. Quite often what they find is the happiest people are the bronze medalists because they're comparing themselves and thinking, I'm really glad I didn't come fourth. And the gold medalists are often thinking, is that it? Uh, you know, when does everlasting happiness begin? You know, is my life changed forever or do I actually still have the same flaws I had two hours ago and the same relationship issues and all of that? You know, there's this sense that you're you're waiting for this perfect moment and suddenly, you know, the heavens are going to open and, and you have divine happiness ever after. And of course, you're you're sort of working that all through. And the silver medalists are looking up thinking, oh, you know, I was one I was one place off Nirvana <laughs> in that divine moment. And so, you know, I I was for a long while going to write about what it's like to come second, because I think it's an experience that happens to all of us. We go for jobs, you know, we get down to the last two and we don't get it. And we have runner-ups in, you know, everything in life. 
But what I realised in the kind of way I was doing my research and having uh, interviews, I was finding that people who won weren't very happy and were often feeling slightly depressed and empty and wondering, is that it? And I thought, oh, hang on a minute. You know, if winning isn't even working for a lot of our winners, then something has gone very wrong in how we are playing this whole game. After the Athens Olympics, Kath went back to her nascent career as a diplomat. She moved to Bosnia and later to Iraq. Today, she works in leadership development and she's the author of The Long Win, The Search for a Better Way to Succeed. I want to start off by you taking me way back. You're an Olympian, you're a rower. How did all that begin? I mean, how did you get into rowing in the first place? Was it at university or before that? I actually got into it quite late, yeah, at university. I had at school not been very sporty and there were certain very sporty types and I was not amongst them. But when she went to Cambridge, she got into rowing and that only happened when someone else got injured and Kath offered to take their place. I was overjoyed to find a sport that A, I enjoyed, B, I actually was decent at um, and I really loved the whole environment of being on the river working with other people, being in a team that was much closer than the teams at school, where actually, if you're on a hockey pitch, um, you know, you could run away from the ball, you could sort of opt out. I did exactly that. I ran away from the ball, I opted out. And me too. Exactly, because that hockey ball hurts when it hits your ankles, right? And for me, what was wonderful was when you're in a rowing boat, you can't really opt out because that is quite nuclear to jump in the river and it's very cold in, in the British River in the middle of winter. And so... It made me opt in because I had no other choice. And opting in was a really lovely experience because then all you do is you've just got to make the best of what you can do at the same time as the other people around you and being aware of the natural environment. And that whole experience, that is what was so magical for me. As she was leaving university, her coaches told her, you know, you could be great at this. If you train and improve your technique, you could compete at an international level. As soon as someone says that you've got potential, you, you want to have a go. And so I thought, you know, brilliant, why not? But at that point, the narrative really started to change. Once I started to become part of the trialling process for the national team, coming into contact with, you know, national team coaches, suddenly it was about, you know, this is not about having fun, don't you? You know, now you need to be a serious athlete. We're here to win. That's all that matters. All of this suddenly became the dominant narrative, which was a bit of a shock to me. But I naively really thought, oh, OK, that's that's obviously really important to making this next step. So I'm going to have to learn all of this new way of thinking, because obviously that's that's what champions do. And, and so I did for quite a while try and take that on board. Kath competed in the Atlanta Olympics, the Sydney Olympics and finally Athens. So the first two were very much dominated by this macho narrative about, you know, it's all who's the winner. And, you know, if you lose, you've got to show how much you hate losing because that's what winners do. So you've got to be, you know, beating your chest and bereft and grief stricken. And it's the worst thing that could possibly happen. Because if there's any sniff that for some reason you're not distraught about losing, oh, well, that's a sign that you're not a winner. But she didn't do that well in either Atlanta or Sydney. She came seventh and ninth, respectively. She felt like something was off. This narrative about toughening up and winning wasn't working for her. At the same time, she says there were some changes in the world of sports psychology. And she went into her third Olympics in Athens thinking not as much about crushing the competition, 
but rather about improving her performance, including her mindset. It also helped that she'd begun her new career in diplomacy, and being in that totally different world had taken her focus off winning. She took home that silver medal, of which she was very proud. Still, she says, as someone who came second... I was left with that sense of how do I, how do I understand it? How do I make sense of that result? How do I walk away and make peace with it? How do I, you know, think about what it means? And just hearing you talk about sport made me wonder, do you, what do you think when over the last few months, you know, there was the incident with both Simone Biles and Naomi Osaka kind of stepping away and saying, I'm not going to do this for a while. I'm not going to compete or finish my part of the competition. That must have really struck you having been in the world that you were in and having written the book. Yeah, absolutely. I think there have been some kind of real major rethinking moments where athletes are not wanting to go down a a track that is going to lead them into a mental health issue that is ongoing, regardless of the medal you have. What is it that's of lasting value that you take with you? What's the story about the way you won the medal? Because that matters. And my goodness, in gymnastics, gymnasts all around the world have been through horrendous things in the pursuit of a medal. And many have said they'd give the medal back if they could change the experience. I mean, to me, that gold medal does not represent a success that we want to repeat or emulate or that is healthy for sport or society or for the next generation to bring them into sport. And and that's where I think, you know, now we've got athletes saying we need to reshape the narrative for sure. And I think it's also really interesting to look at the journey of Emma Raducanu, this brilliant young British tennis player who came over and won the US Open who actually got to the fourth round of Wimbledon she's never won any games on the ATP tour and actually she pulled out of the fourth round match at Wimbledon having had you know some dizziness and her breath not quite being there and again commentators piled in saying oh she's too weak oh she hasn't got what it takes but that's not how she rationalized it or her team you know they literally were just in that kind of learning place of well actually we didn't prepare right and you know we've got to this position we hadn't prepared for before and now we know how how next time to do it better and she takes that with her into the US Open she plays qualifying matches plus every every round of the US Open and never at any point does her coach set her a goal to win the match she's purely there enjoying the process and learning from one game to the next and so that has been another moment of an athlete redefining a mental approach to success that doesn't focus on winning but actually brings fantastic results in a minute how the culture of winning seeps into all our lives even if we've never hit a ball or run a race and how to think differently If you like the broad experience, check out the Ask a Harvard Professor podcast. There you'll hear from some of the world's most prominent scholars. One recent episode that fits very well with this show features Harvard economics professor Claudia Goldin, talking about one of the less discussed reasons why women still earn less than men at work. Subscribe to Ask a Harvard Professor on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You point out that there's a whole vocabulary around winning, a whole sort of set of phrases and language in our everyday lives, like win-win situation. I mean, there's loads of things, aren't there? But very common nowadays is killing it and crushing it. I find that very unattractive, unappealing language for me, but it's definitely related to the winning language, isn't it? Crushing it, killing it. I totally agree. It's a language of aggression and it's a language of violence. Um, I mean, even the whole, sort of, we don't even really think that things like targets, you know, that's actually fundamentally comes from a world of, you know, putting bullets through targets and, uh, you know, deadlines. A deadline originally that comes from the line that was drawn around prisons. And if prisoners stepped over this line, they'd be shot. So we do have a lot of that language. And, and it's interesting, I think, you know, that's part of what I see as a, as a, uh, unhelpful to performance approach in in sport as well if we hate our competitors you know we literally release a different hormone in our bodies it puts us in a different mindset we actually become afraid of them we're much closer to that fear-driven motivation rather than actually I need my competitor they're, they're the one person that understands what you're going through most they're the one person in the world that probably has you know most in common with you and actually you need them in order to get the best performance so you know we actually should be striving together and that's that's what the original meaning of competition so competere in latin is about striving together how that meaning has changed and she says the whole societal love of winning whether it's in sport or the workplace or at school it comes from our long history emphasis on the his it's come through a, a male-dominated world of, if you think winning starts probably in the history books when we learn and we look at history told through the victor's eyes and mouth. And of course, the victors tended to be male through centuries of fighting battles. It was a very aggressive world. It was all about power and wealth. And that was what was important. So if we look at centuries of the history books, then we see this utter focus on domination and who is more superior and you know up to a century ago that's sort of how things worked and in a conventional world that we used to live in you could argue that okay that's that's kind of how things functioned. She says the problem now is that we're faced with issues that aren't win or lose whether it's climate change, inequality, international security, global health. These are all ongoing issues that aren't about who's got the right answer, the best answer, the most dominant answer, the most powerful person in the debate. They're actually about how we work together to try and create a way forward that works globally. And I think in this world, that narrative is now really falling down. And that's why we need to reframe things. And that's why a much more diverse set of voices is important, because I think that heroic male voice, which is something that a lot of men as well, um, don't want to connect with, but almost feel they have to. That's the role they have to emulate and step into. I think there's a lot of male voices who want something different and don't want to be in that heroic fixer mode. 
In her current career, Kath works with teams and organizations on reframing the way they think about success. With less emphasis on short-term wins and ticking things off to-do lists, more on long-term gains that traditionally we might not think of as successes. Things like deepening our relationships with colleagues rather than comparing ourselves to them. She says doing this helped improve her mindset a lot when she was getting ready for her final Olympics. Kath calls the framework she's developed the three C's. The first is with clarity to actually clarify what matters and to go beyond anything that's just a short-term goal that's finite that will be over. So whether that's a race that's going to happen and finish or a set of quarterly results that will happen and finish, what are the things that have lasting value to us? You know, from that race or from those quarterly results, what what matters that stays with us? What's the longer-term piece? What is the purpose? Why would that race or that set of quarterly results be important? What do they move you closer? towards. The second C is constant learning. We were designed to grow from, from the moment we're born. We're all about learning. And it's only if things sort of stop that process that, that we get stuck for a bit. But fundamentally, that's, that's what life is about. And it is an intrinsic motivator at a much deeper level than, than you know, an A grade. And an A grade distracts, really, from the process of learning. So I think to have that sense of how can I just each day be improving things, trying things out? What new things am I learning? What are the ways in which I could do something differently? Or, you know, who can I bring in to challenge or support me? Who might I ask for some feedback that I haven't asked for feedback before? Finally, she says the third C is about connections. Prioritising human connections in everything we do. We cannot succeed on our own. Again, the last couple of years have reinforced for us the importance of social connection. So, you know, again, why would we be putting these tasks on our to-do list above developing relationships, connecting with others, reaching out, listening? Those are the things, again, that, that for me... Uh, I want to look back at the end of the day. You know, how did I listen to people today? Who did I get to know a bit better beyond the transaction that you may have needed within your meeting? You know, who did I get to know in a different way? And what questions did I ask about them? And, and how might that enable us perhaps to collaborate in a different way in the future? So to really kind of put that, the, pe- the quality of the relationships as actually that's part of my success today, not just ticking off uh, a set of tasks that I won't remember in a year's time. I told Kath that when it comes to that middle C, constant learning, I have been wanting to relearn Spanish for a long time, intending to, thinking about it a lot, but I haven't quite decided how that goal ranks in importance alongside all the other stuff I have to do. You hit the nail on the head there. You've got to clarify whether it's important enough. If it isn't actually that important to you, then it won't happen for sure. And I think, you know, you, you were talking about, oh, there's all these apps I could do. And, you know, the, the sort of I could, you know, you, you're looking at what you could do, but you haven't clarified why it matters and you haven't made the case to yourself about why. And it's only going to happen if you really have a strong sense of why this is more important than all those other things you can leap into. Oh, I know why I want to relearn Spanish. I, I just didn't want to drag you through all that. But there are career and personal reasons why I'm keen to be able to speak it again. So if the why is stronger than the other whys for the things you're spending your time on, then you will do it. But if you believe at some level that I'd like to do it, but actually I believe this is more important for me to do today, then of course I'm going to go and do those other things. So there is, I think, that that need to, when we're clarifying what matters, we're clarifying it at that sort of deeper level of not just, you know, I'd, 
uh, you know, when you say I've got an intention to do it, and I think, well, that's only the beginning, isn't it? We all go to work with good intentions, but the workplace can often be a very difficult and unhelpful and uncompassionate place. So, so I think it is about sort of having that sense of, do I think this is the right thing to do? Do I really want to do it? Is it going to make a difference? Am I going to regret in the future not doing this? Do I believe it's more important than this other work I've got to do? I mean, I was writing the book. It took me some years to, to write the book. You know, it's absolutely nobody else was scheduling it. And there were times when I put it to one side for a couple of months and I thought, oh, I've got all these other things. I've got this work. I've got this stuff in my diary. I've got, you know, family commitments, very important. But I came back to it because I kept thinking, do you know what? This is more important than these other things that I'm doing. And so I'm going to come back and pick it up again. It, yeah, with me, because I work for myself, it's all these, well, I guess be same for somebody in a company. You've always got the client or the the thing coming at you from work that you have to give your time to. And it's balancing those other things, like you said, like family stuff and all the other things you have to do. It's a it's a question of, of really thinking about what's most important to you. It is. And I, I think it's important to be thinking about that sort of on a daily basis. So quite, quite often we have a moment where we, you know, at New Year's or at a certain point, we think, oh, yes, now I must do this. But it's actually getting up in the morning going, what really matters today? Um, a bit, you know, again, being quite honest about that, you know, and, and thinking, is it, is it just getting through the list of the electronic calendar? Is that really, is that really what, what's important about today? And in a year's time, am I going to remember anything I've done today? What are the things that matter most? And that's the question to keep answering, to keep asking yourself. Otherwise, you're in an automatic pilot. The months and the years kind of just roll by and we actually haven't done things that, that have a lasting value. And perhaps if you are somebody who is in an environment where it is, has been about targets and KPIs, I can't even remember that, key performance indicators, that, well, that's what that stands for, right? It's quite a it's quite a, a switch in mindset to think what long term success, which let's face it, society thinks success is all the showy things. So you have to get comfortable in yourself with success being something a bit different, something that's day to day or week to week, and that might be a bit quieter and less showy. Yes, I think that is right. And it's a really interesting thing about how our brains work that we have the opportunity almost to tap into something that's maybe less showy, but sort of so much more meaningful that kind of, you know, resonates much more strongly within us. If you think about it, we're, we're almost sort of working on a, um, on an addict's part of our brain. So we kind of use what, what a gambler would use that, you know, oh, I've, I've hit a target. Or I've got a little dopamine hit from that. Or I'll do, I'll do the next one, do the next one, do the next thing. And there's nothing about addiction that we generally see as positive, but that's the, the loop that we're really using by this winning. I want to win something. I want to win the next one and the next one. And often each time we win, it's got a sort of diminishing return. I, I don't think if we step back, we would think that that's, that's a sort of healthy way to live our lives. There is this other part of our brains that, that is open and ready for longer term thinking that is linked to a sense of the values, the purpose that we have, why we're doing things to kind of connect into, you know, our ancestors, the future generations, all of this thinking that can be so strong in, in other cultures that actually we would very naturally fit into if we just allow ourselves to to let our minds go there or to read a bit more about it. And that's where I think there is then just a sort of untapped well that I think once we get started on that, we suddenly realise, hang on, we've been in the wrong game. Kath Bishop. Her book is The Long Win, The Search for a Better Way to Succeed. You'll find photos and links to more information about Kath under this episode 
at thebroadexperience.com. As usual, I am interested to hear from you. Is this long win approach something you can see your organisation adopting? Or maybe it's something you've thought about personally since the pandemic began. You know how to get hold of me via email at ashley at thebroadexperience.com or on social media. That's The Broad Experience for this time. And it's the last show of this year, or at least the last new show. I think I may re-release an older show at some point around New Year's. I am taking a break to gather some new material and to take an actual break. And you'll hear from me again about a month into 2022. I hope you all enjoy a good holiday season, despite the crazy world we still live in. I'm Ashley Milne-Tite. Thanks, as ever, for listening. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.